The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Today's scripture reading is from Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 through 18. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. This is the word of the Lord. Praise Praise be to Christ. So, uh, as we uh, announced last week, uh, last week we started uh, what is going to be our summer series in the book of Philippians, and uh, we're just getting an early jump on that, and today uh, is the second message in that series, and appropriate for the day, the title of the sermon is The Always Pregnant Gospel. And so, uh, our first Mother's Day was February 22nd. 1998, and that was the day that our our first daughter was born, and uh, that is also a day that I asked one of the dumbest questions that has ever been asked in a hospital. As the attending nurse is caring for my wife after after the birth, uh, I asked the nurse if somebody could find me a more comfortable chair because it's been a long night. And she looked at me like I had just committed a crime against humanity by asking that question. And, and perhaps I had, uh, because Patty had been through a solid 36 hours of labor, and uh, it pushed her to the limit. And uh, we'll never forget the nurse that was right by uh, her side. I was on one side taking orders from the nurse, and, and then the nurse was giving Patty orders as well. The nurse's name appropriately was Grace, and um, Grace helped us get through an experience with a doctor who had uh, the worst bedside manner that either of us has ever witnessed or experienced. Sarcasm, insults, passive-aggressive, huffing and puffing, why do I have to be there kind of behavior. And Grace was there the whole time uh, helping Patty persevere through this necessary experience. And there was one point at which Patty said, I cannot do this anymore. I cannot go any further. It's been however many hours it's been. And Grace gets down with, with this this loving intensity and says, you will get through this. We will get through this. We can, we will, we must. And this is the most powerful thing I've ever witnessed my wife do. Give birth to human life after 36 hours of labor. And it was also the most frail and spent I've ever seen her. And in a sense, This is a picture of what Paul is describing when he describes his own ministry. 
He's at his weakest. He's at the end of himself. And through that experience, God is bringing new life into the world. It's really interesting how Paul refers to himself in a similar way that Jesus does in the Gospels with maternal language. He says in Galatians chapter 4, my dear children, you can hear the affection there, you can hear the tenderness, for whom I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. Now, of course, he's not like Arnold Schwarzenegger in junior. He's not you know, the man who, who gives birth to a child. That, that hasn't ever happened. It can happen. And, and yet he's speaking in metaphor that, that those who are on mission with God, whether we're talking about individuals or communities, there is the dynamic of the most powerful things happening, life being brought into the world through the weakest of circumstances. And so Paul, what he does is he, he more, than, more than preaching three essentials, he demonstrates three essentials of what it means to be on that delivery table as an ambassador of the gospel, as a carrier, uh, as one who is pregnant, so to speak, uh, to give birth to new life spiritually in the lives of other people. He, he demonstrates three essentials of what it means to be on that delivery table with grace at your side. And those three essentials are no quitting, no hating, and no competing. So, let's start with the no quitting aspect. So, Paul had had a pretty significant ride, uh, a pretty significant journey before uh, he ever belonged to Jesus Christ or became a follower of Jesus Christ. He was uh, looked upon as a pillar of strength, a pillar of virtue. He was young. Uh, he had the equivalent in his day of, of, of an Ivy League education, uh, uh, training in the classics, uh, seminary degree on top of that. He was what you could call a celebrity rabbi. You know, today he would be speaking at conferences, getting book deals, uh, you know, traveling the world, etc., and after he becomes a believer in Christ, you, you almost feel like, well, may, maybe this was sort of a, a promotion for Paul, and, and things were, were, were just going to pick up all the more, and his momentum was going to go faster and faster and faster with, with all this impact that, that God had assigned for him to have in the world. But instead, after he comes to faith in Christ, he experiences all these hardships. He has a physical disability that, 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 that never leaves him. He tries to pray it out, but it never goes away. He calls it a thorn in the flesh. It's there in 2 Corinthians 12. He tells the story. He's more aware of and awake to his own sinfulness than he's ever been. Romans chapter 7, he talks about his internal struggle with coveting. First uh, Timothy 1, which is at the end of his ministry, when he's sort of at the peak of his his, you know, character development, he says, I'm the chief of all sinners. There's nobody in the world who's a bigger sinner than I am. And on top of that, he is an oppressed man, uh, an abused man, a, a victim of violence. You know, even here, this Philippians is one of Paul's four prison letters. Did you know that four books of the Bible, that four of the books of the Bible that Paul contributed he wrote from, from jail as an incarcerated man. 
But through all these experiences of hardship on the delivery table, as it were, Paul discovers that his most fruitful seasons of life and ministry are not the ones where the wind has been at his back, but where the wind has been in his face. Verses 12 and 13, he unpacks that a little bit when he says, what has happened to me, and he's referring to his imprisonment. What has happened to me, he's referring to the beatings that he's just received. What has happened to me, he's referring to his invisibility to the world. What has happened to me has served to advance the gospel. What a strange statement. So that it's become known through the whole imperial guard and all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. With grace at his side, Paul is seeing new birth happening around him in the most unlikely of places. First and foremost, through the man who was watching him and guarding him when he was in prison. The Philippian jailer, famous story in the 16th chapter of Acts, becomes a convert to Jesus Christ as he witnesses the impact of the gospel on Paul's character behind bars. And then this is, Paul talks about how it's producing a boldness in other people who are now even more courageous to persevere and to preach the gospel out in the world in a hostile environment that we're not quite familiar with with yet in our part of the world. But it was the norm. It was the status quo in Paul's day. But how does, you know, since we are not a persecuted people, um, it is sometimes a challenge to uh, understand the intensity of the Christian experience in, in the New Testament times and how it relates with and connects to our own experience. And I think that one observation, at least, that we can make is that Paul, through his sort of no quitting posture, through his relentless optimism about how God can do mighty things in very fragile situations. It gives us a whole new outlook on winning and losing. It gives us a whole new perspective on who the real winners are and who the real losers are. Because the truth of the matter is you can be crushing it and be a loser. And you can be in prison and invisible and be a winner. You can be invisible to the world except for maybe one, two, or three people and be one of the winners. Interestingly, David Brooks, in his research for uh, his book, The Road to Character, made the observation as he's, as he's looking at all of these different uh, lives of, of people who have accomplished great things in the world, he says that, that there's one thing that all of these titans of history have in common. They all had really good mothers. They all had deeply invested mothers. That unsung calling, that job, that vocation, without which none of us would have survived, and yet gets so overlooked and belittled sometimes. And yet here's Paul, also in an invisible place, filled with joy, filled with optimism about the the impact that God is going to give him while behind bars. What a contrast to Ecclesiastes, which is the series that we did before this one, 
where you know, this, you, you've got a guy who's got all the money in the world, he's got all of the erotic experiences that he wants, he's got all the power that anyone could ever dream of, you know, loads of property, everything, winning in the eyes of the world. And he says, I, this is all vapor. This is all, it's really meaningless unless there's an anchor, unless there's a core that brings me to a greater depth as a human being, which is what Paul had. Did you know that eventually 11 of the 12 disciples of Jesus Christ were martyred? They were, they were put to death. They were executed for their faith. Did you know that every single word of the Old Testament and every single word of the New Testament was written by a person who was oppressed? Every word. Did you also know that the Bible that they all contributed to is the best-selling book of all time? the most influential book in the history of the world. Did you know that the 12 disciples of Jesus, 11 of whom were martyred, the 12th was John, he died in prison, like Paul. The most influential 12 people in the history of the world were oppressed people. You know, when I look at my own story uh, and... When I ask myself the question, where does it appear over the last 22 years of ordained ministry that God has really used me to impact the lives of people? Well, you could say, oh, it's the preaching. It's your, it's the, it's your vision. It's, it's this, that, or the other. I don't think it's preaching. I don't think it's vision. I don't think it's leadership. I think it is the story of anxiety and depression in my life because that is the story that, that, that people come back to me and ask me about. That is the story that more people relate to and say, look, if, if God can get you through that, if grace at your side can, can get you through the labor and delivery process of, 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 of the doldrums of anxiety and depression, then surely God can do something in my life as well. Oftentimes, it is the accounts of our weakness and the, and the, the, the sustaining grace and kindness of God through those seasons that's going to make the biggest difference in the world. That was certainly the case with Paul. And if you rewind the clock of history, you'll see that, that the Christian world changers all had suffering in common. John Bunyan wrote Pilgrim's Progress, one of the, the greatest and most influential books of all time, from prison. Jonathan Edwards was defrocked from his pastoral ministry, from his church. He was shown the door by his closest friends before he wrote some of his most lasting works. Charles Spurgeon, the great Baptist preacher, experienced chronic anxiety and depression until the day that he died. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote his best works while he was in prison for opposing Hitler and for scheming against Hitler, and he was eventually executed. Martin Luther King Jr., oppressed and assassinated, free at last. You know, all these and so many other stories in the course of history and in the Bible itself caused the words of the church father, Tertullian, to ring so true. And yet it, it seems to be so strange at the same time where Tertullian said, it's the blood of the martyrs that has served as the seed of the church. You know, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, the grief expert, says the most beautiful people we've known are those who have known 
defeat, suffering, struggle, loss, and have found their way out of the depths. These persons have an appreciation, a sensitivity, and an understanding of life that fills them with compassion, gentleness, and a deep loving concern. Beautiful people do not just happen. What a statement. Beautiful people do not just happen. You need 36 hours of labor before you are ready to produce life. That's literal in some cases. It's a metaphor that applies to all of us. Those who have not suffered are the most likely to be shallow and superficial people. Those who have been to the depths and made it through have discovered that beautiful people do not just happen. Beauty is a hard-fought virtue when we're talking about the beauty of character. So no quitting for Paul, no hating. As I mentioned that the doctor who delivered our first child had a terrible bedside manner, and one of the things that Grace, the nurse, said was, don't listen to him. Listen to me. Don't listen to him. But the, the, the subtext was, we still have to work with him. And Paul's in a similar scenario here as well in verse 15 and 17. He talks about another group of preachers. He says there are some who are out there preaching Christ, but from a motive of envy, rivalry, and selfish ambition, and what they want to do is afflict me. They want, me, they want Paul out of the way because Paul is competition rather than a partner in their eyes. Now, this text puts a spotlight on two types of preachers, and all of us preachers, we have both of these preachers in us. On our best days, we see ourselves as supporting actors in the story that is about Jesus. On our worst days, we see, ourselves, we see Jesus as a supporting actor in the story that is about us. It's a very fine line, and you can have two people standing next, side by side delivering the same message verbatim with the same tone of voice, the same fa facial expressions, the same gestures, and one of them, it's all about me. And the other of them, maybe like the Apostle Paul, read Rick Warren's Purpose Driven Life, page one, sentence one, it's not about you. There's a much bigger story here than your little story. And your little story can only become big when it gets swept up in the story of Jesus. You only become big in the story when you see yourself as a supporting actor and not the center of the story. Again, that's where the kingdom works in a counterintuitive way. You know, these rivals of Paul, they're trying to make a name for themselves and build their own audience. And all Paul is concerned about is that an audience for Jesus grows and grows and grows, whether through him or even whether through people who preach with wrong motives. You know, he says this in verse 17, what then? Only that in every way, in other words, this is the only thing I care about, that in every way, whether in pretense or truth, Christ is preached. And this I rejoice, that he becomes famous, that he gets center stage, that I'm the opening act, if that, 
He is the one whose name belongs in lights. There is only one pedestal in the universe, and I'm not on it. Christ, and Christ alone belongs on that pedestal. Imagine somebody wishing you harm and grace at your side, whispering in your ear, don't listen to them, but you got to work with them. And here's how. No grudges. No retaliation. Entrust yourself to the one who judges justly and wish them well. Paul's not saying, hey, you know, these these poorly motivated preachers, they're my besties. You know, he's not moving toward them in friendship. There are trust barriers there, so he's keeping his distance. Like Grace the nurse is saying, keep your emotional distance from the doctor, but you've got to work alongside him because God works through fools as well. The preaching of Judas led to conversions and led to repentance. It just didn't lead to Judas's conversion or Judas's repentance. It is all about Christ. But here's, here's something that Paul had come to understand as, as he's getting blow after blow after blow and insult and, and character assassination after character assassination hurled in his direction. It's what Frederick Buechner said, resentment or holding on to a festering anger and unforgiveness and continuing to rehearse all the wrongs done against you, continuing to think the problem with the world is you, and never letting it dawn on me that I'm actually part of the problem too. That posture, here's how Buechner sums it up, the chief drawback is that what you are wolfing down with your grudge is yourself. The skeleton at the feast is you. There are power dynamics going on. When I hold a grudge against you, I think that I am exercising my power against you, but what I'm actually doing is inviting you to have power over me. You own me as long as I resent you. You run my life as long as I resent you. The best way to beat an enemy, Paul understands this, is to forgive them. King understood that. Nonviolent resistance. Darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. It's always been, and it will always be that way. I love what Bono says. Bono's a great theologian, you guys. When he's talking about retaliatory actions in war, and he says, "Is, is it always necessary? Is retaliation always the best act? Because sometimes in trying to destroy the monster, isn't it true that we become the monster? And where the streets have no name breaks out. Where do we get the emotional resources for forgiving? For keeping our distance, because we don't want to be doormats. Only one person was called to be crucified to save the world. It wasn't us. And so, there's a trust thing that we need to keep our distance if somebody's injuring us. But how do we forgive in that? And and, and, and where do the emotional resources come for that? For Paul, it was self-awareness. He never forgot what Christ had saved him from. He never forgot that the number one sinner in the world was Paul. 
at least as far as Paul was concerned. He never forgot that according to Paul, Paul is the darkest heart in the world. It's the only way that we can forgive is to see that we have a lot more in common with the person who's injuring us than we do with Jesus Christ, which is why we all need Jesus Christ. But the other thing Paul was aware of was not just his own darkness, it was also how driven Jesus Christ is to forgive. That as Spurgeon said, Christ loves to forgive even more than you love to sin. What a lovely truth that is. To the degree that we can tap into this, that, you know, cheer up, right? You're worse than you think, but God's love through Christ is infinitely greater than you ever dare to hope. To the degree that we can internalize and tap into these realities, we become, as the people of Jesus, the least offendable people in the world. And isn't that something the world needs today? Is people who are not offendable. You want to be salt of the earth? You want to be the light of the world? Don't get offended. Respond with grace and kindness and tenderness and appropriate distance when somebody has it out for you. But entrust yourself to God who knows when and whom to judge and to punish. And in the end, we're all going to be surprised who the targets of His judgment and punishment are. We will all be surprised. Lastly, no competing. Did you notice how Paul is actually cheering for the success? Not of injurious behavior, but he's, he's, he's cheering for the success of preaching done by people of bad character. All I care about, he says, is that Christ is preached. It's not about me. It's not about me getting my pound of flesh. There is this vision for, for, you know, for two kinds of competition. The Bible invites us to compete in two ways. Number one, compete with yourself. Through the power of Christ, seek to become a better person this year than you were last year. So compete with who you once were. Compete tomorrow with who you are today. And then the other place where the book of Romans invites us to compete is to outdo one another in showing honor. When I hear that phrase, even though he's not a religious man, I can't help but think of Rafa Nadal. I'll never forget, he, he beats Roger Federer to win a Grand Slam. And he's holding the, the trophy, and they, they come to him, and they ask him to give his, his victor's speech. And he says, really, this moment shouldn't be about me, because as we all know, Roger is the greatest player of all time. The irony of that moment is that at that moment, Rafa Nadal had beaten Roger Federer two times more than Roger Federer had beaten Rafa Nadal. Rafa Nadal was the one person in the world who had Federer's number on the tennis court. And yet, what is he doing with the trophy in his hand saying, this shouldn't be about me. This is about something bigger than me. Let's not talk about me. Let's talk about greatness instead. Let's talk about the power that is there in drawing attention away from yourself and giving away glory and giving away power and giving away privilege You know, I was having a conversation with a 
a pastor, a longtime pastor in Nashville who, um, who started a church from scratch. It grew like gangbusters. It was like the it church for, for three, four, five years in Nashville. And this pastor told me a story about Don Finto, who is still with us, still in Nashville, still faithful, still active. But at the time, Don Finto was the senior pastor of Belmont Church. And Don Finto placed in a call to this young pastor and said, I'd love to come meet with you. And of course, you know, he, he said yes to the meeting. And then Don Finto comes and he says, um, it's been great seeing your church grow as it has. And um, I just wanted to let you know that there, there might be over a thousand people that have moved over from the church that I pastor to the church that you do. And, and this young pastor was like, oh no, what's going to happen? And Don Finto said, I just wanted to come here and look you in the eye and encourage you to love them well, because I love them dearly and Jesus loves them dearly. And now can I pray for you? That is what it means to be great. Tim Keller is another one. I just found this out last week, that when Tim was on the short list to go to New York City to start what has become Redeemer Presbyterian Church, he was also on one other short list, Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville. He was being pursued by both. And eventually, God calls Tim to New York, and Christ Pres becomes a lead contributor to that effort. It was a beautiful story under Charles McGowan's leadership. But here's the beautiful thing. Tim and Kathy come from a small, tiny little church in a tiny little town called Hopewell, Virginia, to start this new church in New York City. And their vision is to maybe have two or three hundred people that we can faithfully lead for, you know, the duration of our years and, and maybe be able to help some other churches get planted. And so some 25 to 30 years later now, Redeemer is what it is. It's this global force. And uh, over the years, what Tim did was essentially create his own competition in Manhattan, planting in Manhattan alone over 100 churches under Redeemer and building into and pouring into those church planters. Just last week, Forbes came out with its 50 most influential people in the world list. There was one pastor on that list. It was Tim Keller, the guy who's always and who is still shy about himself and boastful about Jesus. Shy about himself, boastful about Jesus. That is what you call winning. And you don't have to have a big old thing. And, 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 you know, your name in lights and be written up in the newspapers to be winning. It's called having a big character shaped by a big God with grace at our side. Let's go to the Lord on these things together. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your insistence that we not listen to bad voices, but that, that, they, that we work with you to be part of what you're doing in the world with this pregnant gospel of yours that, that now even more than in the first century is moving forward and giving birth to new hearts, new lives, 
and new communities all over the world, over 2 billion people today naming the name of Jesus Christ as their Savior who has swept them and us under his wings, as he said in the gospel, like a mother hen does with her chicks. Father, thank you for your maternal instinct to care and to champion and to cheer as we participate in labor and in delivery of what you have called a new creation and new communities in Christ. Teach us to be faithful. Teach us to be small in our our own eyes so that we can be big in yours. Teach us to be shy about ourselves and boastful about you, we pray, even as the best of mothers can be about their own children. For that's certainly the way you are about us, Lord. You are, in many ways, like the tennis player who holds the trophy and yet who points all the attention elsewhere, being in very nature God and yet laying down your own life, humbling yourself so that we might be exalted out of our humble place. It's so amazing we can hardly take it in. And so we just thank you, Father, in your name. Amen.